grateful for Kazia, especially, and her beautiful cello. Just a reminder that our prayer time from noon to one will continue, and we'll be in the Cooper House this week because of Bible school. We'll use this place in here, so we'll be in one of the front rooms in the Cooper House from noon until 12. We turn now from to Acts chapter 2, really a continuation of what we were looking at last week and the coming of the Holy Spirit and the results of the coming of the Holy Spirit. Now, we go from one of the shortest, most effective sermons ever preached, uh, eight words, to some uh, almost 30 verses here, no less effective, okay, in the audience that it reached and the change that it brought in the lives of those who heard the message of Jesus Christ as Peter opened his mouth, now filled with the Holy Spirit, and there was the work of God. So if you're able, will you stand with me? And I'll read from Acts chapter 2. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would come upon us and provide for us understanding and insight into your word. That these would not just be words on a page, but they would be the living word of God and penetrate our heart right to our core. That we might live in accordance with them, we ask in Christ's name. Amen. Acts chapter 2, verse 14 through 41. But Peter, taking his stand with the eleven, raised his voice and declared to them, Men of Judea, and all you who live in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give heed to my words. For these men are not drunk, as you suppose, for it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was spoken of through the prophet Joel. And it shall be in the last days, God says, that I will pour forth of my spirit upon all mankind, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even upon my bond slaves, both men and women, I will in those days pour forth of my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will grant wonders in the sky above, and signs on the earth beneath, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the great and glorious day of the Lord shall come. And it shall be that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs, which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know, This man, delivered up by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. And God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death, since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. For David says of him, I was always beholding the Lord in my presence, for he is at my right hand, that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue exalted. Moreover, my flesh also will abide in hope, because thou wilt not abandon my soul to Hades, nor allow thy Holy One to undergo decay. Thou hast made known to me the ways of life. Thou wilt make me full of gladness with thy presence. Brethren, I may confidently say to you regarding the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. And so because he was a prophet and knew that God had sworn to him with an oath to seat one of his descendants upon his throne, 
He looked ahead and spoke of the resurrection of the Christ, that he was neither abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh suffer decay. This Jesus God raised up again, to which we are all witnesses. Therefore, having been exalted to the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured forth this which you both see and hear. For it was not David who ascended into heaven, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand, until I make thine enemies a footstool for thy feet. Therefore let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brethren, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent, and let each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and your children, and for all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God shall call to himself. And with many other words he solemnly testified and kept on exhorting them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. So then, those who had received his word and were baptized... And there were added that day about 3,000 souls. This is God's inspired word for us today. So please be seated. In the uh, old days of the church, specifically I'm thinking of uh, Charles Spurgeon. We've talked about him before. There were times where there were over 10,000 people in attendance at the, the tabernacle in London. And he would preach without a microphone to those 10,000 people. And that was within an enclosed space. And I, I wonder how it would be to preach to five or 10,000 people in an open space. Five to 10,000 people who probably were not that in favor of what you had said. Probably five or 10,000 people who maybe thought you were drunk that morning. Or five or 10,000 people who knew that just a few days before or a few weeks before you were pretty foolish and denied what you said you would never deny and denied the one you said you would go to the grave to defend. This is Peter's dilemma. Here he is. The Holy Spirit has just come upon those who were gathered. They've spoken in these different languages so that all those who are from other places have come and can understand what is happening. And they look at Peter and say, well, what does this mean? What does this mean? And now he's kind of stuck because they're looking to him to explain what has happened. And they know all about Peter. They know his weaknesses they know he's, uh, what kind of guy he is, and here are five or 10,000 people perhaps gathered around, and how do you communicate to this hostile crowd this wonderful thing that has just happened because they want to know, what does this mean? This is the situation that we find here in Acts chapter 2. What does this mean? Now, some in the crowd were mocking. They were accusing them. They were saying, oh, they're, that's not different languages. They're just drunk. And the response, Peter kind of makes a joke about it. Uh, it it's kind of lost here in, in the translation. But he says, it's only the third hour, okay? Now, maybe the, the kind of intent there is if it was the ninth hour, maybe they would be. But it's only the third hour, so it's not really a possibility. So he kind of evades that. Uh, charge and continues to move on. Okay, He doesn't want to get caught up in this question of what's going on. Are they drunk or not? The question is, this is the power of the Spirit that has come upon the church. What does this mean? What 
does this mean? And at the end of the sermon, they asked a new question, didn't they? Verse 37. What shall we do? Okay. Isn't that great? They, they come in, they read the word, in a sense, read the word. What does this mean? Okay. And at the end of the sermon, they ask the question, what shall we do? How then shall we live? What is our next step? Okay, you've brought us here. You've seen this. We have been pierced to the heart, it says. Pierced to the heart. What shall we now do? Well, he says, repent and believe. Remember, just a few days ago, there were only 120 people in the church with a big C. 120 people in the church on the earth at that time. Suddenly, there are 3,000 added in that moment because they repented and believed. Now you'll notice that in your notes we just have uh, lines there and I was traveling this week so I'm going to give you some questions to chew on and I'm also going to give you, if your small groups are meeting, I'm going to give you those questions to chew on before we leave as first uh, as well. So the first question in the outline simply is what's the lesson we learned from Peter? What is the lesson that we learn from the life of Peter? The answer is simple, and I'll relate it in a little larger expansion here. The lesson we learn from the life of Peter is that no matter how great our sins are, no matter how poorly we may have failed Christ in the past, that doesn't mean that in the purposes of God we are forever unforgiven, or we are forever destined to a back seat in ministry. The lessons of Peter's life is God's forgiveness is total. God's forgiveness is complete. It's not as if he forgives most things and then suffers us to linger on in doubt about whether he will forgive everything that we have done in our lives. God can restore. God can forgive. He can take a broken vessel uh, like Peter and remake him and refashion him. And I have seen people in, in, in years I've been a believer beat themselves up because of how they used to live beat themselves up because of things they have done in the past and carry this guilt in their life and in their heart thinking they could never be forgiven of these things. Yes, they believe, but there's always this spot in the back of their head or this, this heaviness in their heart that this event or these events weighed upon them. They carried them around. They never felt a total forgiveness from these things. So this morning... Before we go any further, I want everybody to understand, in Christ, all things are made new. When he forgives us of our sins, he forgives them as far as the east is from the west. There is no doubt. They are gone. They are remembered no more. The only place they are remembered are in our own hearts, in our own minds. And we, sometimes we carry them, and, and for whatever reason, sometimes we want to hang on to them. Sometimes we feel like we, we owe it to feel guilty about the things that we've done in the past. Even though we're believers now, we need to, to carry that. They might stay in our memory, but they, they are forgiven. They are gone. They are events that happen. And once we seek forgiveness and ask Christ to come and cleanse us from these things, they are gone. They are remembered no more. It doesn't matter whether you've been a liar or a thief or, or, or whatever it was. Whatever many things it may have been. Those things are gone when Christ comes into your life and cleanses you of sin. Now maybe you're on the other side and you can't seem to forgive others. There's something that has been done to you and you cannot forgive them. And you say, I'm a believer, but I'm just hanging on to this and, and it's eating away at me. 
we can forgive because we have been forgiven much. Christ has come and wiped away our sins. How are we expected to live now? We are expected to be ready to forgive those who seek repentance, who ask for our forgiveness. Those things, too, are to be washed away and remembered no more. So once you have been forgiven, you can be forgiven in the same way. That's the lesson we learned from Peter. Peter failed. The Lord forgave him. He went on. What's he do? He preaches this sermon. 3,000 are added to the church, used in such a powerful way. This was the one who denied Christ, yet he was forgiven by Christ. So let's look at what the spirit-filled version of Peter can do when he meets a hostile crowd. Okay? Now, the, the, the passages from the Old Testament that he quotes are already written for us because uh, Luke writes them out for us. So we don't have to turn back to Joel or to Psalm 16 or Psalm 110. They are listed for us here. But these are the things that Peter quotes to explain what has just happened. Because the question is, what does this mean? So he says, let me tell you. And he goes back to the prophet Joel and he quotes them. Now, understand, Peter is not sitting here with his New American Standard going, let me tell you about, about Joel. Okay, back on page 1314, uh, the prophet Joel, he doesn't have that. Where is Joel in Peter's life? It's in his head, it's in his heart. Where are the Psalms in Peter's life? In here and in here. Peter knew the word. Okay, he was steeped in it. So when it was time to defend what the Lord was doing, he went back to what the Lord had said he would do. So he says, this is just what the prophet said. And everybody there who was Jewish understood what he meant when he said, this is what the prophet Joel said, that this is what would happen. So Peter, number two in the outline, Peter was able to define biblical events because he knew his Bible. When people, people come to you and say, well, what do you think these things mean? What do you think these, these events in our lives mean? What do you think, uh, you know, is there any meaning to this? We ought to be able to go to God's word and say, this is what God says this, these types of things mean. He says, I don't allow you to go through anything that I will not care for you. I will not support you. If you belong to me, all things I'm going to bring into your life are for your good. Now, you may not like them, but they are for your good. Now, oh, that's a tough one. Okay, and you can't say that to non-believers. You can only say that to believers. Okay, and we don't particularly like it because it means the Lord may allow things into our life that we hate, but therefore are good because they mold and they shape us to be more conformed to the image of Christ. So Peter has been reading his Bible, and he's been reading the scrolls or whatever, and probably from a, a child in the family and in his Jewish upbringing, he has some understanding of all of these things, so he relates the prophet Joel. Uh, now Joel, uh, he's kind of a, a prophet that's somewhere between 500 and 900 years before the birth of Christ. Okay, we just can't put our finger on exactly when he was, but he's in that neighborhood. And his words are as relevant when he wrote them as they are here in Acts chapter 2 as they are in 2012. And if the Lord doesn't return in 3012 or 4012. They will be relevant in just the same way. This was foretold from God. This was from God. So let me highlight this verse 17. There are two parts here, 17 and 18, this powerful witness. Okay, and, and that's the good part. And then the bad part is um, this, the second aspect, 19 and 20. And it shall be in the last days, God says, that I will pour forth 
of my spirit upon all mankind. Okay, that's everybody. And he goes on to explain exactly what he means when he means everybody. Doesn't matter whether you're a rabbi, doesn't matter whether you're rich, doesn't matter whether you're poor, doesn't matter whether you're a slave or free, a male or female, I will pour forth my spirit upon everyone who believes, okay? And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even upon my bond slaves, both men and women, I will in those days pour forth of my spirit, and they shall prophesy. In those days, the great and glorious coming of the end days. Now, uh, when, uh, this is the question, we're, we're pretty, I think we got this one down. When will Jesus return? Uh, it would be soon. So that makes us in the end times since his ascension. We have been in the last days. Okay? Now the last days are like, eschatologically speaking, soon. They, Christ will return soon. The last days have been for 2,000 years. There'll be maybe 2,000 more. Now things happen in the last days, in the end times. They may happen to a greater degree the closer Christ comes, but we don't know exactly when Christ comes. Only the Lord himself knows when he will send his son back. So he says, in those end times, so from the ascension on until the return of Christ, these things will happen. My spirit will be poured out upon all those who believe. Not just a select few, but upon all those who believe. Joel says that one feature of the last days will be the outpouring of the whole Holy Spirit on people of every kind. Men, women, young, old, high, low, doesn't matter. God's people will receive power, and the main effect of this power will be a pouring forth of the powerful words of Jesus Christ. They will proclaim the things of Christ. They will prophesy about God. They will demonstrate in, in, in what they say and how they live the powerful words of Jesus Christ. This is part, with extraordinary boldness, extraordinary boldness, this is part of what Joel says. Now the kind of the dark part of the prophecy is verses 19 and 20. And I will grant wonders in the sky above and the signs of the earth beneath, Blood and fire and vapor and smoke, the sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the great and glorious day of the Lord shall come. And it shall be that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. And we've looked at this previously, I think last week. The day of the Lord is soon. The day of salvation is today. Okay, there's a big distinction there. He'll return sometime. You are to believe today. Today. So everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Do it now, because this great and glorious day of the return of the Lord will be nasty for those who do not belong to him. So, in Peter's mind, what were the authenticating signs and the indicators that this Jesus, who was born, who lived, who died... And according to the words, the, those men of Jerusalem killed, what were the authenticating or the indicators that give him the proof that he was the Messiah? And there are four of these. So Peter had a conviction about the power of Christ and the forgiveness. He knew that forgiveness in his own life. Okay, He had seen that clearly in his own life. The man who denied him three times suddenly is the man who presents Christ to this hostile crowd and their hearts are pierced. Their hearts are pierced. So God authenticated Jesus, as in verse 22, by his miracles. Let me read that for you. 
Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know. Now we have to understand that there were probably people in this crowd who had seen these miracles. Probably people in this crowd who had experienced them firsthand. Their arms were withered, they were restored, they were blind, they could now see. And they had yet to believe. They were healed, but they had yet to believe. And, and, and Peter is saying, God authenticates Jesus Christ through these powerful miracles so that you understand that he is the Messiah. He is the one that I've sent, and your life will never be the same after you come in contact with him. So God authenticated Christ through these miracles. Secondly, he authenticated Christ through his death. Let's look at verse 23. This man delivered up by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. Now, this is one of those passages that, that carries both sides of the coin. Okay? The man delivered up by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. This is Christ. This was the plan of God from all eternity that Christ should be delivered up to give his life for the forgiveness of our sins. Okay? In, in a sense, before, if you could say before time began, and, and as far as the Godhead is concerned, they are infinite. There is no beginning to them, no ending to them. It was always agreed to by the three that Jesus Christ would come and give his life for the forgiveness of our sins. This was the plan. But you see the other side of that coin. You nailed him to the cross. He was delivered up by the sovereign plan of God, but you nailed him to the cross and you put him to death. So here we have the actions of man and the sovereign plan of God, and they are working together. This is God's sovereign plan. Did he force them into nailing Christ to the cross? No, it was their hatred for him. It was their own sinfulness that drove them to that point. And Peter is saying these are, these are both working together here. To fulfill the plan of God. He's got his plan. You hated Christ. You nailed him to the cross. It was the fulfillment of God's perfect plan. He says there are probably even some of you here in this crowd today. Not you, but Peter is talking. Saying you were probably there. Maybe one of you was the Roman soldier who put the nails through his hands. You have done this. It was by his death. Now you would think in the messianic scheme of things that... The Messiah, how could the Messiah die in this fashion? I mean, how he, could he be put to death in this fashion? But yet it was the plan of God in his perfect sovereign plan, predetermined, foreknown by God, but men put him to death. So the third one is God authenticated Jesus through his resurrection. Now, they, Peter spends one verse on the miracles and one verse on his death, and he spends nine verses on his resurrection. Remember, resurrection is the theme of Peter and pretty much everybody else's preaching in the New Testament. If you look at the sermons in the New Testament, the main theme of them is the resurrection of Christ. Verse 24. Now remember, verse 23 says, You put him to death, verse 24, and God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death, since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. Death could not hold him. It could not keep him in the grave. Nothing could keep Christ in the grave. He was coming out. That's the resurrection power. That's what happens to every believer. The return of Christ will be out of the grave. 
the return of Christ, we will be out of the grave. God raised him up. You killed him. God raised him up. Now, let's look at the prophecy that talks about these things. Verse 25. David says, and this comes from Psalm 16. Psalm 16. For David says of him, I was always beholding the Lord in my presence, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue exalted. Moreover, my flesh also will abide in hope, because thou will not abandon my soul to Hades, nor allow thy Holy One to undergo decay. Thou hast made known to me the ways of life. Thou will make me full of gladness with thy presence. And Peter says, this isn't talking about David. Because we all know where David is buried, and his flesh and his bones have undergone decay. This is talking about the one that the Heavenly Father promised David would sit on his throne for all time, whose death could not touch, whose flesh would not know decay. David is saying, this is the Messiah. Okay? This is the Jesus whom you crucified. This is the one who could not be held in the grave, whose flesh did not deteriorate. This is the risen Messiah. Okay? This is the... The, the one who sits at the right hand of the Father. Peter identifies Jesus as the Messiah, and he says, this Jesus God raised up, and you have seen him, and you have seen him. So the fourth one is, not only did he authenticate Jesus with all of these things, and Peter is, is going through kind of deductively here, making his point, he says, through the exaltation of Christ and through the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, God authenticated Christ. Verse 33. Therefore, having been exalted to the right hand of God, having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured forth this which you both see and hear. For it was not David who ascended into heaven, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make thine enemies a footstool for my feet. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ this Jesus whom you crucified. Now, this is kind of the, the, the place, and, 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 you know, in sermon crafting, this is the moment of decision. And what is the response of the crowd? They were pierced to the heart when Peter said this, because they had come to the conclusion that we were the ones who killed the Messiah. They may not have done it themselves. They may not have been the Roman soldiers who, who nailed him. But they were part of the crowd that cried out for his death. They were part of the crowd that may have seen him when he came in and sang hallelujahs. And just a week later, they were sitting there saying, crucify him. And they were pierced to the heart. Pierced to the heart. Spurgeon says, it is idle to attempt to heal those who are not wounded. To attempt to clothe those who have never been stripped and to make those rich who have never realized their poverty. Some days you walk out of church, you ought to feel, feel pierced to the heart. Some days when, if you're involved in sin, it ought to hurt. It ought to pierce your heart because you won't understand forgiveness. You won't understand healing unless you are wounded by your sin. You won't understand restoration until you have fallen. Okay, That's one of the problems with a world that doesn't think much of sin. Why do I need forgiveness from? Okay, I'm good. Uh, sorry, you're not. But you also ought to walk out of here with the confidence 
that once you seek forgiveness, those things are gone. You have been pierced so that you can be healed by Jesus Christ. Now the question, what does this mean? What are we supposed to do? If you're in your small groups, you've got to deal with those two questions. What does this mean for the church today, and what are we supposed to do about it? Review Joel. Review those four passages of Psalms. If this is what has happened, how then shall we live as the body of Christ? What are we supposed to do? There's a sense in which as the Spirit comes and as the Word comes home, not just to our minds, but our hearts and our consciences, and it renders us in a sense naked before God we're stripped away as the things of Christ strip away our defenses and they take us down to whether it's just us and it's just God and Peter says repent repent believe be baptized this is what you do what shall we do now we need to repent to turn from our sin that we might follow the things of Christ that baptized that we might be cleansed of our sin in that outward sign and seal and that we might know the forgiveness in our hearts this is what you are to do this is what it means now repent because of it as I was going through this I was reminded of a passage that I'd read years ago about an event in George Whitfield's life. George Whitfield was one of the, the preachers in the Great, uh, great Awakening, uh, the first Great Awakening in America. He was this, this just a great guy who was forceful in his preaching, but it was plain and simple. He preached this sermon in 1739 outside a coal mine in England. Now, understand coal miners in England in 1739 were a rough crowd. They spent days and days underground and would come up, and they would come up the opening of the mine, and there is George Whitfield, and he is standing out there, and he's preaching a sermon about Christ, and he's preaching a sermon about the power of Christ, and the love of Christ, and the forgiveness of Christ. And these guys are coming out of the coal mine, they've been there for days, and their faces are caked with the black coal dust, and they stop, and they listen to Whitfield preach, and they hear the words of Christ, and the guy who is, is writing about this says, says, and you could see the white streaks from their tears as it would cleanse the coal dust. And they would hear the words of Christ and hear the forgiveness. And many of these hard, hard coal miners were added to the church on that day in February of 1739 as they heard about Jesus Christ. The question is, what would they do? What should they do? They repented and they believe and they were added to the church. So it is time to repent and believe. If you've never given your life to Christ, today is the day. There is no time left. The command is to believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ today. If you have harbored unforgiveness in your heart, today is the day to let that go. If you've never thought that you could be completely forgiven of the things that you have done, or the things that weigh upon your heart, you are mistaken. It can be completely wiped away. These are the promises from the word of God. So let's pray. Lord, a few days ago, Peter was hiding out in the upper room just with the group of the believers. They were praying. They were seeking your will but they weren't anything different than they were the days before. But your spirit came upon them, and it filled them, 
And suddenly when Peter's mouth opened, the hearers were pierced to the heart. You did the work through his words. And all he did was talk about Jesus. This was his life. This was his death. He was raised from the dead. Today you must believe upon him. These are the words for us today. And if we're already believers, Lord, this should fill us with great confidence that your forgiveness is so total and so complete that we, in our hearts, need not hang on to the things that have gone on in the past. You have forgiven them. Can we not put them aside as well? You have given us the power and ability to do that. The Spirit comes and rests in each believer. Those things are cleansed from us. We now have the ability to walk in the things of the Spirit and not be tied to the things of the flesh. We will do this imperfectly until we are in your presence. But Lord, strengthen us each day that we might learn and grow, that we might walk in the presence of the Spirit, that our words and our attitudes might be filled with compassion and care, that we might build one another up, that we might forgive one another, we might hold one another in such esteem as part of the body of Christ that we are willing to go far beyond what is normal to care for one another. Come upon us today, Lord, and fix these things in our hearts that we might ask the question, what do we do? We repent, we believe, we are baptized, now we live it. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.